reaching from way down here. Yeah. Yeah. From way down here. Welcome to Thread, a podcast designed to explore God's story and lead you into a full life in Christ. Thank you for joining us in this conversation, co-hosted by myself, Hannah D'Souza, and Dr. David Pochter. Welcome to Thread, a podcast designed to help you find your place in God's story. Today is our fourth episode in our series of seven on God's world created, and we are in the Genesis creation accounts in chapters one and two, and we have discussed so far creation and beauty, seasons and rhythms, and light and darkness. Today, we are addressing Yahweh's creation of human beings. And before we jump in, I have to thank you actually, Dave, because you um, brought up the dark night of the soul in last week's episode in light and darkness and read out that poem and i've been taking a class this summer on spanish translation and for the final project i had to pick a text to translate and you inspired me to pick the dark night of the soul so i ended up doing that for my project we'll see what grade i get but that's what i chose so if there are any spanish speakers listening read it in the original spanish because actually rhymes and is even more poetic than the translation we read right yeah that's so cool that that. you brought that up actually that poem in spanish is considered one of the most beautiful poems ever written oh and and especially in its original language it is kind of medieval flavor but it's cool to see the rhyme scheme and things you miss in translation but so yeah thank you for that let's talk about that (laughs) okay so this is fascinating hannah we're on episode eight I guess it's our ninth one if you count episode zero. We're finally starting the story today. Yay! Today we finally get to the story. <laughs> so we've done so much groundwork and trying to lay this foundation of how we were going to approach the podcast, but we actually start the story. So what we're going to be doing in, you know, right now we're in this, what we're calling Era One God's World Created these seven episodes, but when we look at Genesis, and we'll, we'll break this down in our next eras, Genesis really, the story from Genesis 1 to Genesis 50 is really two major pieces. And we could look at Genesis 1 through 11 as a pre-history, and then Genesis 12 to 50 as the origin of the patriarchs. And so what we're going to be doing over these next four episodes is we're going to break Genesis 1 to 11 into these four parts. We're going to talk today about becoming fully human. We're going to talk next week about human limitations and what happens when sin enters the conversation. We're going to talk about the flood narrative, and we're going to talk about empire. So that's the plan here now that we're actually beginning the story. You mentioned prehistory. What do you, I guess that's my first question, what do you mean? by this concept of prehistory in Genesis 1 to 11. Yeah, so Genesis is really fascinating. Scholars have been, you know, so many scholars have looked at Genesis for, as you know, for thousands of years. But these first 11 chapters in Genesis really are considered some of the most important among all of Scripture. And in some ways, they're the best known but they're also sometimes the most frequently misunderstood. So prehistory 
is is a kind of nomenclature for describing the ancient biblical world before we start getting into specifics with culture, religion, geography, and narratives and storylines, which we do see unfold with the patriarchs. So we actually come into Abraham's life and we see all those historical particularities about his life. Mm. So in this Genesis 1 through 11, we really see this part of the story without that historical particularity. So the plots are critical to set up the rest of the storyline, and we pick up these spiritual foundations that we're going to be unpacking today. So even as we were to look at this generally in this kind of prehistory era, we see Genesis 1 and 2 talk about creation, of course, and humankind or anthropology, which we'll talk about today. We see the entrance of evil and the impact that evil has, and then we start seeing the implications of that. So these foundations become really important to start understanding or to create a background for the patriarchs as they develop themselves. So that's what I mean by prehistory. So if we think about Genesis 1 through 11 as a spiritual foundation, it gives us the lens. I know we've talked a lot about we're dealing with story and spirituality. I think it's important when we approach the Genesis text to recognize that the lens again, right? There's a lot of ways you can unpack these chapters and, you know, theologians pull on all these different threads. Of course, we're pulling on the spiritual foundation thread. So when we look at this text, we do recognize the type of literature it is. And I, I actually want to talk about an, a classification of literature that I think would be helpful for us in understanding this. I first read about this through Walter Brueggemann. Brueggemann is one of my favorite mm. Old Testament scholars. But when we look at this text, you know, we're not looking at history. We're not looking at a science, you know, text. We're also not looking at mythology in the traditional sense of mythology. Hmm. Brueggemann actually proposes that this is proclamation. So proclamation in the, in the sense that it's a type of literature where God is proclaiming to us his intent, his decisive dealing with his creation. And one of the, one of the concepts that circles this that I think would be helpful for today's conversation is Brueggemann again. He, he takes this whole text and he says, this is creator creating creation. That's a really powerful way of thinking about this. Creator creates creation. In other words, these are confessional words. These are words bound up with faith and faithfulness and covenant. This is not something just, you know, that's this clinical, disconnected way of thinking about it. It's actually loaded with meaning. And for, for those of us that are, you know, followers of Jesus, it's so important for us to see the, that that's what's happening here. So hmm. he goes so far as to argue, which I really like this too, and we'll put this quote up for our people watching. But he says, terms such as cosmos and nature should never be carelessly used as equivalents, 
For these words do not touch the theocentric, covenantal, relational affirmation being made. In other words, when we use words like creator, creates, creation, we see intent. We see relationship. We see love and attention. When we use other words sometimes, like cosmos or nature, it's easy for those to be disconnected from that confessional space. So we see God here has this powerful purpose for creation. It's not careless or haphazard or accidental. So the ultimate meaning in these stories can be found at the heart and purpose of the creator. So... This story is not about God alone. This story is not about creation alone. They have to be seen together. It's covenantal. So both creator and creation have freedom to choose one another in this narrative. God creates us and chooses us. Humans are created and they will also be given choice and freedom. We'll get into that here a little bit later. But the whole nature of this then is that this proclamation is one of covenant, of relationship. It's a sovereign call of God's heart and his intent for us as human beings. He loves and he cherishes his creation. He desires to live in covenant with it. Mm. So would it be fair to say this idea of proclamation of covenant that Brueggemann, I think, propose that idea is that a genre then um i would certainly say proclamation is a genre it's a type of literature we you know maybe the best contemporary example would be vows Mm. right in a wedding we're proclaiming our love to one another and making vows in some senses that's really what this literature is like god is proclaiming his intent for creation and the relational con- component to it. So I would say that proclamation would be a type of literature as opposed to historical narrative. Right. Right. The covenantal piece is the observation of the confessional nature of this, that this is, this is a theological, spiritual text communicating intent for creator and creation mm. to be in relationship. And is that what you right? mean by confessional? when you describe those particular words as confessional in nature. Yeah, we need to do a better job with definitions. Thanks, Hannah, for reminding me. <laughs> oh, yeah, I need help too. <laughs> That's about definitions. Yeah. So confessional, when we say something is confessional, we say that we look at it with, with faithfulness or we look at it with the intent of a spiritual relationship. So for you and I, when we read these texts, we read them with a confessional lens because we are believers, right? So I'm sure you've you've been exposed to this in your studies when you're at, you know, when you're at Oxford or even now at Harvard. There are people who don't read the Bible from a confessional lens. Definitely. Right? They read it as literature in a strictly separate sense. And so, you know, we can learn things from that when we read the Bible as literature. But even though we may read it as literature for you and I, we, it's hard for us to separate the confessional nature of it because we read it as believers mm. too, hmm. right? That makes sense. 
So for us, when we look at these texts and even where we're going with the next four, we can look at Genesis 1 through 11, and if we approach this with that spiritual foundation lens, what we're looking at, if we, again, we look at kind of the meta narrative of Genesis 1 through 11, we see that before creation, the universe was formless and empty. The creator's creation brought structure and meaning. And we see these foundational elements put in place, specifically in Genesis 1, which we've talked about. God's creation brings beauty. God's creation brings seasons and rhythms. God's creation brings light and darkness. And those are elements that we find absolutely critical for understanding our own spiritual development. So now today, we're going to get into our spiritual anthropology, and we'll talk about what that means here in a little bit. But that means how are we created as human beings from a spiritual perspective? And then we'll get into, in Genesis 3, the role that evil and its influence play on our creation. And we'll talk about that through the idea of limitations and the way that we were made. And then we start seeing, once sin enters the picture, we start seeing the implications, right? So we can choose, because of our freedoms, we can choose to serve God or choose to serve self and sin. And we see what happens as that plays out. And that's what's developing in Genesis 6 through 9 with the flood narrative. And then that's what ends up happening with Babel and this tower narrative. So just as a, maybe as an example and a taste of what we'll get to, we even see this glimpse in Genesis 6, 5 and 6. Hannah, maybe you could read this text for us that shows us when we choose to serve self instead of serving God, what happens to this covenantal relationship. The Lord God saw that the wickedness of humankind was great in the earth, and that every inclination of the thoughts of their hearts was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made humankind on the earth, and it grieved him to his heart. So what we see happen is immediately when human beings feed that nature in them, that sin, they follow that path. It leads us away from God, and it creates this wickedness on the earth. And of course, we could certainly see that play out in all kinds of ways. But what's interesting about this, it says the Lord God was sorry, mm. and it grieved him. So we also see this come all the way back to that proclamation of covenant, this idea that well, we were created to be in relationship. When we're not in relationship, it grieves God. Wow. So these stories end up communicating these very important lessons when considering creator creates creation. That in some senses, I mean, in every sense, both parties of the covenantal relationship have freedom. But the creator, always remaining creator, also always remains committed to the relationship. I mean, when we think about the meta narrative, that's the most fascinating piece to me of the entire meta narrative. The creator remains committed to his creation. The creation, us, remain the creation no matter what we do. We're always the creation, right? If we want to be God, we find out we can't be God. We are always <laughs> the created. And even though God isn't heavy handed, and controlling and gives us those freedoms, 
he builds into the universe mechanisms that will remind us and nudge us back to him. And we see that play out throughout the stories. So, yeah, it's just absolutely fascinating. Human beings can do, they can disobey, they can build their empires, but God always has a way of thwarting our success and bringing us back towards covenant because that's his intent. So I think we could actually say the intent of the sovereign creator is that our, in, our as the creation, our only comfort is really ultimately in his care and promise. So it's important for us to remember that this is our beginning, our foundation. This is where it all starts. And that's why these, these texts are so important to the rest of the narrative. So that, you know, that does lead us to what we're actually doing today. You know, when we talk about becoming fully human, what we really get down to at the core, if you want to find meaning in this life, it really comes all the way back to living the, to the way we're made, right? So, you know, simple, simple, simple analogies that are often helpful. The difference between a screwdriver and a hammer Right, a hammer's created for a purpose. A screwdriver's created for another purpose. If the hammer is used as a screwdriver, or the screwdriver is a hammer, they're not very effective. Nope. Right. So, our fullest sense of meaning comes about when we understand what we were created for, and that is intended to be in relationship with our Creator. So, so what we're doing today, Hannah, is we are talking about anthropology. Now, that's a word that I know a lot of people are familiar with. Some people are probably not familiar with. So maybe you could help us. What is anthropology? So it's essentially the study of humanity, human behavior, beliefs, linguistics, culture, and that study throughout history, I'm guessing. You're guessing? (laughs) I'm not an anthropologist. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, man. Yeah. So when we talk about humans becoming fully human or us becoming fully human, that's what we're talking about is our, we're looking at the study of the human being. What makes human beings full? What gives them meaning and purpose? So, you know, when we study anthropology, we can look at anthropology from a, you know, just a physical standpoint, a cultural standpoint, or a spiritual standpoint. So when we talk about a spiritual anthropology, we're talking about spiritually, how were we made? Why does that matter? And our view of how we were made actually has huge implications with how we think about life, right? So I'll give you an example, Hannah. If you see yourself foundationally or fundamentally as this flawed, aired, incompetent, horrible, you know, wretched person. Often, yes. <laughs> Often, yes. So that's, that's, that's not, you know, that's not a healthy way to engage life, right? If we see ourselves fundamentally as created in God's image, created for fullness, created in love, created in relationship, then that can also change the way we engage the world, mm. right? Right. And I think that's why today's important that we talk about this. So I know I've done a lot of talking. Hannah's going to do more talking as we progress here in our (laughs) conversation today, right? 
Don't I'm worry. This is the listening part. <laughs> I'm learning. It's good. This is your listening part. <laughs> I'll do some more listening here as we move on. So what we're going to talk about today is three major kind of observations from the text when we get into this Genesis story in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, and that's where we're going to be uh, as we discuss becoming fully human. So one of the th- first things I want to talk about, and we, we'll talk about three things today, right? Humans are created differently than the rest of creation. That's one. As we talk about what it means to become fully human, we first have to recognize we are not the same as the animal world or the plant world. Amen to that. (laughs) Number two, uh, we're going to talk about God's intent and desire for humankind. And we've talked some about that here already, but there's some more that I think we can unpack about that. And then third, I want to talk more about this covenantal piece, how we're bound in this triple relationship, and we'll get into that towards the end of our time together here. So let's start with God creating humans differently. So we're going to end up reading, and Hannah, maybe we'll have you read in Genesis 1 in just a second. But before we read this text, I think it's important to note what happened before this text. So in Genesis 1, when we get to God creating the animal world, we see the text say, let the water bring forth all these you know, sea creatures. Let the birds fly. Let the land bring forth. And we see the whole animal kingdom created. Mm-hmm. But then we see a shift in the way that the text describes humans being created. So, yeah, maybe you can read verses 26 and 27 for us in Genesis 1. Then God said, let us make humans in our image, according to our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and over the cattle and over all the wild animals of the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. So God created humans in his image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. There's so many wonderful things in this text. You know, out of the gate, one of the first things that we see is instead of the land bringing forth the human in this story, of course, remember there's two, there's two creation accounts, Genesis 1, Genesis 2. We're going to get into both today. But in the Genesis 1 story on the seven days of creation, we see that, that the water brings forth and the birds fly and the land brings forth, but then there's this shift. It says, let us make humans. So it's as if humans are created from above in the heavenly spaces, Mm. as opposed to the land bringing forth, which is interesting, right? Observation. Then there's these two comments. Let us make humans in our own image, according to our likeness. And, you know, Christians for thousands of years have wrestled with what does that mean? really mean our image and and our likeness one of the interesting takes on this was a theologian from the middle ages bernard of clairvaux and i love how he describes this he sees image and likeness as very different things meaning image is this indestructible image that god puts in this indelible mark inside of us, right? There's a stamp of God himself in the human being that can, no matter what happens, can always be redeemed and reconciled. 
Hmm. It's like this gem or this this precious thing inside that that you can always peel back and discover and and bring out right this image of God in every human being, which you know that uh, the reason I think I like that is it always gives hope, no matter how far we are, no matter how broken we are, no matter how much we've strayed. God still that image is still inside of us. Hmm. But then He would describe likeness is the way we live. So even though we have this indestructible image of God inside of us, are we living according to the likeness of Jesus in our case, right? And certainly that's something that varies. Are we doing a great job really imitating and living in the likeness of Jesus or are we are not? Hmm. So again, that's just one way of looking at it, but it gives a lot of interesting insight, right? Definitely. Into that. So we're made in his image and that can't be altered that kind of stays with us regardless of our actions but then whether we live out his likeness that's in our behavior i guess we have a choice is that what you're saying but that doesn't yeah well that's what bernard of clairvaux would say okay i like that yes that's certainly one (laughs) great way of thinking about it you know the other the other interesting thing about this part of the text is that in all the other accounts of the birds being created in their various kinds and of course the water bringing forth in their various kinds and the land brings forth the animals in its various kinds there's only one kind of human humankind mm. and i i think that's so important right yeah. we've messed that up over history there's there's only one kind of human being and they are all created in love and for love in covenant now it's interesting he says they're created as one kind, but distinguishes male and female, but still of the same kind. So anyway, there's a lot there. There Of course, there's (laughs) other people that can unpack all that stuff. We've got to move on. So let's talk about God's intent and desire for humankind. We, We touched on this with the idea of covenant and relationship, but this really leads us into this important second creation account that starts in Genesis 2, 4. And it'd be really good for us to look at a couple of these verses. So let's read Genesis 2, 4, B to 9. In the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, when no plant of the field was yet in the earth and no vegetation of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain upon the earth and there was no one to till the ground, but a stream would rise from the earth and water the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living being. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden, in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. Out of the ground the Lord God made to grow every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food, the tree of life also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Yeah, so we immediately see a very different kind of story, right? So we just drew attention to in the first creation account that the land brought forth the animals and that we were created in the image and likeness of God, almost in this different heavenly sense. In this story, we have the opposite, right? And it brings up different elements. And these are spiritual, right? Remember the spiritual foundation. So 
what gets brought up here, we're actually formed from the dust of the ground. We are born out of the earth, which gives us this intimate connection to the earth. Mm. This, and I, I would again argue covenantal connection that we are intricately bound to the way that we treat the earth and the earth will end up treating us. It, it goes back and forth. And of course, we see that play out, of course, today too, right? And then the Lord God places us in this garden. So garden imagery, this is where it begins, but we see this throughout scripture that garden imagery always tends to communicate something Geography always tends to communicate certain things. So certain things happen in gardens, certain things happen on mountains, certain things happen on the seas. And what happens in gardens? Gardens are where intimacy happens, where we walk closely together, where we feel safe. It's where Jesus was with his disciples the night before his death. It's where we end up in Revelation 21 and 22, back in the garden. We see God walking with us in this space. We read in the text that he walks in the cool of the day. Uh, so we see intimacy here. There's not shame here. It's beautiful, right? So then the text goes on in verse 15, and this is an important one, Hannah, and this, this is important for us to think about because we often equate work with, with sin and what happens in Genesis 3, but that's not the story, right? The story says in Genesis 2, verse 15, the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden, as we've talked, to till it and keep it. In other words, work and our working the ground was integral into our very sense of who we were created to be, right? Yeah, I think this is such an important conversation. Because, like, As you said, I think we can often forget that this image is pre-fall, pre-sin, <laughs> and overlook yeah, the role that work plays in our God-given identity. And as we just read in that verse, that was kind of the vocation, the calling that God gave to humankind, that ruling over the earth, naming the animals, tending to creation, and all before sin had entered and corrupted the picture. So yes, work is not evil, even though I think we can feel that sometimes. <laughs> Something I've also right. noticed is how we can often draw quite sharp lines between what is spiritual or sacred and what mm. is secular and put one on a pedal stool while potentially demeaning the other. And I think work can often fall into this category of secular or not somehow a part of our spiritual identity. And I think it's great in this return to Genesis to be reminded that work was an integral part of us bearing the image of God who himself spent six days creating, working in the same way that rest is part of us bearing his image too. There's a book that I just finished listening to on Audible by our friend John Mark Comer called Garden City. And it is great because it speaks a lot to this and how I think in our desire today to not be defined by what we do. And I've often heard that phrase, we are human beings, not human doings, which is true. But I think in that we can forget the, the God-given nature of work and how living out our vocation can actually be a part of our worship even. and it. It's good because I think it challenges the way we view our work. And in in that book, John Mark Comer talks about kind of in, in a Genesis-shaped worldview, our life, all of life is worship. And he he says here in this quote, 
God's original intent was always for human beings to join him in his seven-day rhythm of work and rest. Both overwork and underwork rob us of the capacity to enjoy God and his world. And I think Jesus is such a great example of this as God embodied. He completely shatters kind of that very simplistic way we can view what's sacred and what's secular in the commitment he had to his own vocation as a carpenter for three decades. And I think it's so fascinating to me. Sometimes even more than the miracles is just this picture of all the fullness of God entering the mundane and just entering the rhythm of working six days and resting on the seventh. And how um, he was just as much God in that, in his carpentry, as he was in his ministry. And I really love the idea of how when we are using our gifts in work, whatever that may be, I don't know, you listening, coding, working with your hands, teaching, serving people or gardening even, and doing those jobs to the best of our ability. It makes me think about how Jesus did everything well. When we're loving people on the earth and doing that for God's glory, we are living out God's vision for us as his image bearers. And that's when even work can become a form of worship. So I think it's a great conversation to be entering into about the value of work. Yeah, I love that. It's I love what he says about overwork and underwork. And it's just true when you have a day, no matter what you're doing, I mean, it could be my career work or it could be working around the house or it could be fixing things. When you put in a good day's work, you just feel like there was meaning mm. and a sense of doing what you were made to do. And then if you overdo it, you also start breaking everything. Everything starts breaking down. So. Yeah, that's really great. So we're created to work. We're created for intimacy. We see in this text, we also see that we're created for freedom and with freedom. And this is, you know, this is, of course, what starts leading us into the, what we're going to get into in our next episode, but where trouble starts setting in, in Genesis 2. Hannah, could you read verses 16 and 17 for us? Yes. And the Lord God commanded the man you may freely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall die. So in this whole sense of being created to, and given this freedom of we get to choose, right? We get to choose all these wonderful, beautiful things, and we can also choose to cross the line. And that's why we're going to talk about human limitations next time. So when God makes us, I even like the image of what happens in the garden. Like there's all these amazing things going on in the garden. There's all these incredible, beautiful trees. And there's just one. There's just one you're not supposed to eat from. (laughs) And of course, as human beings with freedom, what do we often want to do Mm. is do the one thing that we're not supposed to do. But it shows God's heart and intent for our freedom. And, you know, I, this, whenever I read this, I'm always reminded of this concept of the potter and the, the pot that, that plays out in Isaiah and Jeremiah and in Romans that, you know, God's the potter, we're the pot, we're created for a specific reason. The pot shouldn't say to the potter, why did you make me this way, right? I mean, in some ways we, we have to, we're, we're a true sense of fulfillment and and uh, meaning comes is when we can accept why we were made and for what we were made. 
Romans 9 even says, has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one object for special use and another for ordinary use? In other words, we're lumps of clay. And uh, it's important to remember that in our (laughs) spiritual anthropology. Yeah. Right? So last thing, I know we're, this, this episode's a little bit longer. So this last point we wanted to talk about is that we're also created and bound in this triple relationship. So when we talk about covenanting and proclamation of covenant, we also see God showing us very specifically that our anthropology, our definition of ourself is told in this triple relationship our relationship with God, our relationship with the earth of which we were, you know, we came from, and our relationship with other human beings. And so when we think about our anthropology, we, I think it's really helpful to think that way, that we define our health based on how am I doing with God? How am I doing with the earth? How am I doing with other human beings? I think our relationship to the earth is another topic that can often not get the attention that it probably should in Christian circles. And it's something I've been trying to make sense of too for myself. And I started a book recently, another book by Sandra Richter. I mentioned her in a previous episode, her book, Epic, The Epic of Eden. And this book is called Stewards of Eden. And I think in her work, she does have this idea of going back to Eden, all biblical theology even starting in, in Eden. But she says in this book, and I have a quote here, rarely it seems do we as Christians reflect on the effects of humanity's rebellion on the garden. The responsible stewardship of creation is not only an expression of the character of our God, it is the role he entrusted to those made in his image. And she goes on in her book to talk about this idea of creation, care, and caring for the earth, even as part of the gospel message. And it's interesting, actually, that usually is those on the margins, the the poorest or the farmers that end up paying the highest price for society's failure to steward the land in a sustainable way. And something that interested me and what I've read so far of her work is she talks about how, I think it's Leviticus 25, this idea of this, the land even having 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 a Sabbath. So it's not just people, but the land gets a break or is meant to, given that rest. And I think the agricultural term is fallowing. But the whole point of that is it's meant to preserve the health of the land, the biodiversity, the soil. And it maybe limits output short term, but it ensures long term productivity. And some that's something that I think the modern world is definitely failing at and in doing so fails the most vulnerable. And she also, yeah, speaks to this idea of this, the environmental crisis that we have being a product of greed rather than need. And I, yeah, I'm interested in this idea because I, it's not something that I've given value to personally, and maybe even you can relate to that even in the church tradition that we are in, that I think the emphasis can be on, I think the, the word is soteriology, like salvation theology, the idea of okay, we're getting to heaven, it's um, about salvation and conversion, and even the world is passing away, so we cannot think about the importance of taking care of the land. When I was in Oxford, I attended a a church service there, a Church of England service, it was Anglican, and actually the entire sermon was on recycling. And I remember thinking, okay, I was 22, probably very self-righteous, and thought, okay, they've clearly missed the point of the gospel. (laughs) But actually now, reflecting back on it, I'm like, wow, he was really 
speaking to some of this idea of creation care and caring for the earth and for the marginalized that I think I've missed in a lot of my own discipleship. Wow. Yeah. No, I, I, I think you're right. We tend to, in different traditions, emphasize different aspects uh, and give priorities to some over the other. And I think what's so good about going back to these texts is to look back at what was it, what was the intent mm. and how do we right size the way that we think about this. So, you know, as we wrap up today, I think I would even draw attention to not only does God bind us in these kind of triple relationships, but he speaks to us through these traditions, through these triple relationships. So God speaks to us himself in our relationship with him through his word, through the Holy Spirit. He speaks to us through creation. And I think he is, God is speaking to us right now through creation in many ways. Of course, he does when we spend time out in his creation, but he's also speaking to us in a meta narrative sense of how well have we taken care of this earth that we were supposed to take care of. And in what ways are we reaping what we've sown? That's also God speaking. Mm. And God also speaks to us through one another. We certainly, any Christian who's been in this relationship with God for any length of time, they would be able to say and articulate how they've learned so much and heard God's voice through other people. Mm. So not only does God bind us in those relationships, God speaks to us in those relationships. So this is a good foundational starting point for us to talk about our human anthropology. What does it mean to become fully human? And this will be good for next episode now because we can, as sin comes into the picture and starts distorting God's intent, it helps us recognize what the role that sin plays, but it doesn't remove or scar God's original intent. And so we have to be able to hold on to this, what we're talking about here today, as we start seeing this story play out. So that's the plan for next episode when we talk about human limitations. So Hannah, it's always great to have these conversations with you. I think they're thought-provoking and engaging. So great to see you today. It is. Yes, in many ways, I think we've just pulled on a thread, as you mentioned earlier, for yeah more conversation. So I'm grateful for this foundation for next week. We'll see you then. Bye. Thank you for joining this Thread Conversation. We're more than a podcast. Check out threadpodcast.org for more immersive content. Though I'm on here, I get a better view of this boundless